and it's the applicability and the the frequency of use of that memory and that learning that I think keeps it present and consistent in your mind. And then going on that fine balance of how much rote memorization do you need to know versus how much deep learning. And welcome back to episode 13 of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. Good to hear from you and good to see everyone. We went on a little break for the last couple of weeks because we are putting together an episode that will be one of the most unique and interesting pieces of work that John and I have ever worked on. This is a unique format for a podcast and we are very excited to be launching this in the next couple of weeks. But for this week, we're going to be focusing on the institutions of education and how people learn and what methods and new modalities people are using in order to learn more things and increase the rate at which they're learning new tools, not just to talk about, but also to put into action in their roles or the careers or even their own lives. So with that, we can start off with a couple questions and I'll hand it over to John. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the couple questions go, really, there's just one, which is how do humans learn? What's the best and most optimal way to, I guess, construct this learning behavioral pattern? Um, and then as you scale up that learning effect, as you scale the learning within different settings with different cohorts of individuals, how does that learning adaptation then change, right? Because these are all components as to how we best learn in that setting and the set in our mind, whatever mindset we have, these are all very much so contingent uh, factors in the learning process, depending on, you know, how much information we can then recite after this um, learning protocol. So, so maybe... Maybe it could be helpful to just kind of bound what a learning session looks like. If we were to like modularize learning, right, from start to finish, what is it to basically have access to this new type of comprehension about whatever topic sector it is? And what is it bounded by? As in, how can I make the statement that this person does or does not know, right? And, and so, I, and I also want to avoid the, I guess, tendency to jump into the standardized ways of doing this, right? And, and, and what I mean by that is there is different types of knowledge sets, right? There's a propositional knowledge type in where I can basically recite some type of rote memorization pattern. Maybe it's learning some new vocabulary words or so forth, right? But at some level, there is an impermanence to those rote memory protocols, right? And so it's like, okay, if I if I surveyed them over, you know, maybe a month after they've just learned this concept, right? I might be able to say that they've learned the concepts. Two months later, you know, they might get terrible results. And then I would see a comparison and I'm like, oh, well, well, maybe they didn't actually learn anything, right? So what is it that we can say bounds learning in, in a sense that we can make the conclusion that someone has learned, right? Maybe we start there, just kind of branching it into these modular chunks, and then we can kind of scale up the effect of learning. Well, I think it's interesting because obviously a lot of us that have been through different forms of school, whether it be high school, university, graduate school, there are so many different approaches that need to be undertaken in order, in order to learn the required information that you then have to put into use. And I think that's the biggest differentiating factor between learning something and knowing something. Because when you learn something, I think in order to fully have a comprehensive understanding of a topic or a subject or a technique, it's when you can relate it to something else, I think shows true comprehension of an idea. Mm -hmm. Because when you can memorize something to the level where you're able to regurgitate it and begin the, begin the process of connecting the dots for how this whole pattern, you know, outlays. If you're looking at a biochemical metabolism pathway and you know all of the steps and you know the acronyms and you know how each one of them is laid out, it's easier for you to memorize it and to recite it. 
But if you learn it fully and you understand it, you're able to compare it to something else and say, oh, this step in the process is kind of like this, or this whole process or procedure of building a car is actually like something similar to this. Mm -hmm. And I think one of my favorite examples of learning or different types of education are the approach of here's a, a, say a remote controller or a toy car. And here is a tool like a screwdriver and a drill and a hammer. Take it apart and try and figure out what each piece does and then figure out how, how you put it back together. I think that level of depth and creativity that that undergoes when you have to explore how something works creates pathways in your mind and in your memory that allow you to learn it rather than just know it. Because I can look at it and say, oh, I look at, I've looked at the instruction sheet. I've looked at the instruction manual. I know how it works. But if I actually give it to someone and say, take it apart, if you know how it works, most often you'll be, oh, I'm, I don't even know. So that that's perfect because that kind of funnels me into the central dichotomy of learned behaviors, I would say, and in, in that I, I did mention propositional knowledge, which is more or less learned from some rote memorization tactics. And what you're mentioning, on the other hand, is something what I would call experiential learning, right? And, and whether or not that process is through some kind of deconstruction of some material object where you're actually breaking down the core components that allow it to function, or whether it's through a constructive process, right? These are the two different types of experiential learning atmospheres. And that I can basically try to put a bunch of things together, or I can basically dissemble it. And, 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 and from both... I guess, environments of learning, I will be able to take away um, very central points that are reflected through that experience itself. Uh, and, and it's really interesting. And, and, and the reason that these, I would say, have this clear dichotomy in terms of, well, permanence for once, in terms of how long you can actually use this core skill of comprehension from this learning experience um, you know, that, that's, that's the central area, right? It's, it's how long will these tools of, of my memory allow me to continue using them um, over that long period of time, whatever it may be. And, and so that's that's really the tough aspect of it. And, and, and it's kind of this balance, right? Because you do need to have some rote memorization in there to even, you know, create the labels for the categories of the deconstruction, perhaps. You know, you need to know the names of these objects. You have to memorize that aspect. And so at some point, I, I, I want to know, you know, how much of learning should be just purely experiential versus rote memorized because there is this this tricky balance this tricky tightrope we have to walk and that we do need some prerequisite base understanding of just terms in order to then use it in an experience that refines whatever learning point we want to take away from it definitely i think that's like that's the that's like the question of the surgeon right it's like okay if you need x type of surgery that's very specific i need a liver transplant or i need a bone graft and my my femur or something like that you will obviously have a doctor and a surgeon who's had nearly a decade of training and learning and experience and and understanding and obviously you want the surgeon who has learned the most things but at the same time they may not remember I haven't, like, they may say, you know, I, I don't even remember how you go through the different layers of bones in the foot because I don't need to, I learned it at one point and I don't need to, I don't need to know that anymore, but I know more on the area of my expertise than I do anything else. And it's the applicability and the, the frequency of use of that memory and that learning that I think keeps it present and consistent in your mind. And then going on that fine balance of how much rote memorization do you need to know versus how much deep learning. I think that is almost problem specific. And when you have to look at different types of problems, if you're still failing to achieve an outcome, 
you probably need to adjust your balance one way or the other. And I think it's going to go on a case by case basis and say, I'm not really understanding how to solve this problem. Maybe there's more things that I just have to memorize in order to reach this activation energy so that I can learn a method to solve this question. Or I know I've memorized too many random things that don't directly relate to this outcome. I need to learn how these mechanisms work in order to use those memorizations to mm -hmm. enact a, a solution. So it's kind of a balance and I think it's problem solution specific. I like that framing, uh, the use of the term activation energy, because I think that's exactly the way to describe it. It's like you have some core point that you want to comprehend, but why is it that you can't understand it? what's in the way? What are the barriers to unlocking this comprehension? And a lot of times it could just be some simple level of jargon, some acronymization that you don't really understand. And then you have to go through all these different rabbit holes of jargon. Um, and so maybe, maybe we can kind of, uh, I guess, cash this argument here, this, this kind of modular learning experience. Um, I'm, I'm trying to I guess, understand exactly what makes a learning experience valuable in the context of comprehension. So what I mean is like, you know, I can have some amount of time where I am experiencing some learning atmosphere, but what determines how quickly am I to actually take something from it? Whatever experience, whatever, whatever time point. Um, and, and it's, it's something valuable because, you know, we have so many things to learn. We have a limited amount of time. Right. And so, the, the question is, what is determining in how long an experience needs to be before you learn something, before you take some core insight away from it? Um, and, and, and I guess we can address it by first just basically explaining what, what it is that binds an experience together. Because, I mean, there's, there's, there's components to this. There's parts of the experience where you're not learning anything, but there's parts of the experience that you are, right? There's stimuli in this experience itself that you're being able to reflect on and, and create new structures of thought from it. But at the same time, there's also many stimuli where you're not, where they're, you're basically static uh, stimuli that you've already learned something about. But in some way, this is where it gets really interesting. And this is why it's like, you know, when you're not finding yourself learning in this atmosphere, maybe it can be helpful to just go out in nature and learn. Is that, you know, depending on what stimuli you're surrounding yourself, those will have an interesting mixture with the stimuli you're trying to learn about. And it's like, okay, there's this combination problem too, right? And it's like, okay, this is, this is a huge problem for uh, universities in that they have to figure out exactly how to control the environment that their students are in. Right. Um, there, there's all these other just ex external stimuli in, in the setting itself that can basically impede upon some deconstructive experience or constructive experience as well. And, and so it's like, you know, maybe going out in nature is better for constructive experiences. Maybe being in a harsh clinical lab is great for deconstructive processes. That way you can basically defocus out all the crazy stuff and just focus on what this is. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the whole point I'm trying to draw is that, you know, what are the factors we should consider when we're thinking about a learning experience um, in terms of setting? Maybe we can approach that first. Absolutely. I think all of the, the senses are actually critically important in the way a memory is developed and how well you learn something. And to build off the first point, the set in the setting of where you're learning and what that environment looks like is a huge factor of how I think even all the way down to preschool level teachers in kindergarten design their classrooms and design their curriculum for how different brains developing at different rates retain information and attention. And I think coming up to the university level or even the professional level, it's something that's still a lot of teams enact today. 
where they'll be they'll be working on strategies or ideas, and they say, you know what, we need an offsite, or we'll we'll go we'll go work at a, a, a WeWork somewhere else, and we'll try and change our environment to create new novelty in the diversity of our ideas. And that's that's a really cool phenomenon for why that happens. And it reminds me of one of the tricks that I used in school when studying, which was flavors of gum. And I would assign different classes a flavor of gum so that when I was studying for organic chemistry, I had winter blue. And when I was studying for transport phenomena, I had cinnamon. Mm -hmm. And while studying and doing that homework, I would chew that flavor of gum. And then during that specific exam, I would chew that flavor of gum just to have one more layer of depth of association coming with the feelings that I had in that moment. And I thought, can I take it even farther and go down to like candles? And then I was like, okay, I'm just wasting time at this point. But I don't know if it worked. I think it did. But it's interesting to think about how some of the memories that we have that are the deepest, most easily recollected memories we can think of usually come with something more than just an observation. It comes with a feeling or an emotion or or the the ease at which we can remember something that was difficult or traumatic. On a really, say, painful day, people may remember the weather. They remember what the sun was shining or People often say, you know, the, the day I remember someone, someone passed, it was a normal sunny day or something like that. So the associations that are created with a whole person's environment are very closely related to that memory. That is very interesting in the association, the gum example, um, mainly because when you're, when you're creating these association networks, what you're doing is essentially creating triggers for your brain to recognize, oh, I have this flavor in my mouth. Let me let me fire these similar neural structures that go with this flavor. Or in the case of you know training your body to learn about a specific thing, in this case, transport or whatever, um, while eating the gum, it's like that is this this connectivity. And so then we can basically extrapolate that a little bit more. Let's take it deeper and say, okay, maybe maybe learning is simply maximizing the number of network associations. And I'm not necessarily totally in agreement with this, but let's let's try to pick this apart. Learning learning success is relative to the number of network associations both within the topic sector and outside of the topic sector. And so what do I mean by that? And so it's like, you know, in nature, say you're studying in nature, say you're trying to learn something in nature, right? There's the external factors like the trees, the wind, the the weather outside, and then there's the actual intrinsic factors of the learning. What are you thinking about? Right. And so my, my, my question then is like, okay, we have all these associations we're making in, in any process of learning. It's, it's how do we not clutter the association network? How do we basically make sure that all the associations you're making to are the right triggers so that you can recite this knowledge regardless of situation, regardless of, of risk that, that is present, regardless of pressure. Maybe you're on stage all of a sudden, right? But you're used to reciting your speech in nature. And so when you get on stage, all of a sudden it feels like you don't know anything. Mm -hmm. What happened, right? What happened to all that knowledge? What happened to all that learned experience that is suddenly gone, right? Uh, and, and, you know, you might make the argument that anxiety plays a role in, in the learning process, but that's also part of, the, part of it, right? Anxiety comes from a lack of potential network associations that have been made with stimuli in relation to the topic itself. Absolutely. Right. And, and so I'd, I'd be kind of curious to just, just kind of hear... Uh, you chat about that network association model for learning um, and what your thoughts are on it. Definitely. Well, I think one of the most important things that I've heard time and time again is that's why you're not supposed to study in bed. And even if you can help it, which got 
extremely more difficult in the past couple of years now that people are all working from their apartments and their homes, but they say you shouldn't even be working in your bedroom. Your, your bedroom and where you sleep and where you rest is not a place that your brain should associate with activity and communication and, and learning and studying. It needs to be for the best quality solely focused on that is the place of rest, of peace and non-distraction. But I know that's really challenging even for myself. I have a desk in my room. It's how it has to be. But for even people who are in school, I remember all the time they would, you know, study in bed, they would have homework spread out all over their covers. And I know that's, that's, that's bad. Your brain is supposed to associate being in bed with falling asleep mm -hmm. and that's not where you're supposed to work. And I think that goes for many, many other things. If you are very comfortable and used to studying at a coffee shop and then you go into an exam room and there isn't that background noise anymore, or there's not that, you know, active chatter and music and almost white noise, that silence of an exam room can be almost deafening. It can be so distracting in that silence where you almost hear your own heartbeat in your ears. And there's so many different instances like this where the association of environment with the topic or just the general activity in what you're doing is really, really important. And this is something my, my dad taught me really early is practice like you play so that you play like you practice. And that's exactly how it should be. If you're going to be playing a sport, go to practice like it's the actual match or something like that and creating new ways to learn or new levels of association for learning difficult things is about associating actively your environment with what you're learning. And this doesn't have to be anything crazy where you're like, oh, I'm learning a new topic or I'm reading a new book. I need to do it while standing on one foot. Like it doesn't need to be anything so arbitrary or unique for it to be impactful, but just the attention that you're giving toward your environment actively allows you to make that connection even deeper. Mm -hmm. So if you're saying, I'm sitting here on this chair, if the more you can describe your situation and your environment as you are learning something, the more your brain is recognizing that environment with something that is rep rep replicable, right? So I can sit here and say, in this color chair, on this weather of this day, the more you can describe your environment, the more other ways that memory has an association which makes it even deeper mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than some people who have a photographic memory where they're like, Oh, I know exactly where this piece of information was. It was on the top right corner of the page. And I remember looking at it as I was studying through, or you know exactly where that fact is located on your study guide. And then you look through it and you're like, Oh, I, this probably won't be on the exam. And it almost looks like the whole page of notes. And that one little line is blurred out. And you're like, I know that's the answer. I know where it is. And it's one word and I can't remember it, but I know on my piece of paper, that's where it is or in the textbook, that's where it is. But if you can create levels even deeper than that, where it's okay, not just the book, but if you can remember what the table looked like, how tall it was, how the lights were, what the smell was, all of these added layers of observation allow you to have form deeper memories. Right, right. And there, there's, there's, they serve as cues. And on that point, right, though, you can create a lot of these different association complexes, right? And, and so the question that I have is, what is a more efficient way? To generate those 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 network associations, so I don't have to remember those extraneous features that actually aren't really significant in in actually conveying a learning point, but they are significant in allowing me to recite that learning point, um, which, which is kind of a silly way to learn, don't you think? I mean, in, in in some, I mean, it's it's great when you're doing a test, right? But when you're looking at it at a at a very deep purpose like level of, of learning. It doesn't really make much sense, honestly, to have all these extra informational sets correlated to it. 
I, I guess I'm just wondering if there's, you know, like if I was, if I was to have this like little, uh, uh, dial and on this dial, every single one, it pointed to a different task that you could go down on this dial and I spin the dial and then it'll land on any one of these random tasks. Right. And I give it to the person and I say, okay, your job, your job is to learn this. You're, it doesn't, you don't, you don't even know what it is, right? It could be something that you're already good at, something that you really aren't that good at, right? What is the protocol to then learn, right? Is it, is it to, you know, go to lots of different experiences? Is it, is it to uh, draw lots of different types of table formats, graphics to try to represent it? You know, what is, what is the search for optimizing this learning pathway, right? I, I spin this dial, you have a random task and you got, you know, it's a speed run, right? So you're, we're, we're looking at who can complete this learned task, uh, in, in the, in the shortest amount of time. Right. And, and, and the thing is, it's like, you know, well, it depends on how we're testing them right on, on, on that. That's a whole different ball game, which we can get to here in a second, but, you know, just highlighting on the actual process, right? How much association, you know, it's different for every individual, obviously, but I'm just wondering like if there's like a protocol to kind of approach this and, and just to say like, okay, let me start by drawing out three different types of graphical representations of this concept, right? You know, how many is too many, right? Um, I don't know, and, and I'll just push it off there for you. I don't think we do fully know, and I've seen a couple of TED Talks and there's been a couple of books on how you can optimize your your way of learning and learn more faster, read more things faster. And there's all these little tips and tricks. And one of the ones I remember that I tried to do for a while that didn't really work for me was drawing these lines on the pages of your book. So say you're like reading a book and you use a ruler and you draw lines in one word, right? Like one word indent on each side. And as you're reading a book, you train your eyes to peripherally use uh, or your, the peripherals to read the last and first word on the page so that you're actually skipping that word directly, but you're using it in your peripherals to then read. And then you go to the next line and you use your peripherals. So you start actually one word in, and this is to like train you to be able to read books faster, which I thought was really interesting. And it, I was able to do it, but I felt like I remembered less of what was on the page while trying to skip through or not skip, but I guess speed through some of the pages a little bit faster, but going more into kind of like generally how you can optimize your learning. Another one of the ways that I've seen is the, the graphical or at least visual artistic representations of topics and subjects. And I think the way, you know, a lot of us are trained to take notes in high school and in school is you have your, your column on the side, you have your headers, you have the bullet points that are critical underneath. And then you go through and you take this almost table of contents like format of notes where you go through and you have a couple practice problems, but the way that I've seen a couple new, um, experiments for, for information learning and retention is these very strange kind of rolling globular circular information graphs of, of creating this networked node where you have an idea within a node and you write all the notes related to that idea in this bubble or in this node. And then you say, Oh, this section is actually connected to this idea over here. So you draw a line off, and you write how it's connected on this line into a new bubble. And again, this is also a very, very unique way to take notes and learn an idea. But then apparently as you go back through and study and review these, you have a greater visual understanding of the, the structure of an idea or a, a large topic on the page. So that as you're looking at it, you don't see this idea in its, in its non-uniform context you see it as like a, a whole shape. You see this idea as the framework of nodes that it is rather than just like a bunch of bulleted lists in a, any specific order. You're trying to see the connectivity. Exactly. 
Yeah. Connectivity mapping, like a mind map, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I mean, like, look, with notes, you know, there's there's this uh, sacrificial play when you're taking notes. You're Well, you have to listen first and foremost. And while you're doing notes, while you're focusing on the, the task of making notes, which is going to take control of what you're thinking about. So you're actually going to be absent of mind, really, about what the lecture is going through while you're taking notes. So it's actually worthless to take notes um, in that regard, right? To kind of jot down what, whatever the speaker is saying. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of associating one word, perhaps, with some section of a lecture and then trying to bind those concepts together. And that way you, A, aren't wasting time taking notes, and then B, you actually can understand what, what the hell the guy was talking about. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe we can kind of shift here. So, you know, there's these association games we can play with learning. Um, and, and people, I'm sure, you know, figure out what association networks make them comfortable. But at the same time, what are the association networks that don't make them comfortable, which make them distracted, right? Because that's the other side of the coin. It seems like every every person I talk to nowadays is like, oh, I have some attention deficit disorder. And I'm like, hey, you and me both, right? If everyone's got one, then who, who you know, why, why even bring it up in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we all struggle with distraction, and especially in this day and age with all the different technology components we have, it's like, well... What is this? What is this distraction thing here? What what is, what is the power of distraction over time? And you know, um, I, I just want to see how we play around with this distraction concept. I mean, it's really hard. Like, think about it. It's it's so unbelievably easy for you to access rapid fire entertainment and information all day, every day, twenty four seven, non personal, directly catered to you in any format you want. So imagine if an artist spent all of their time in a museum. They will never create, right? They spend all their time viewing, analyzing, observing, you know, interpreting art in every form and every way. And if an artist spends all their time in a museum, they'll never get anything done. You need, you need to let your imagination breathe, remove distractions, get these easy access, easy entertainment things out of the way. And for most people guaranteed, if you put your phone, put, put away everything, your phone, your book, your TV, do nothing. And like, this isn't really a form of meditation, which is directly kind of guided or has an intention. Just sit on the couch, do nothing for an hour. It will be really hard. It will be really hard because we, we get so, we get so geared and accustomed to having or needing or doing something all the time, all day long, whether it be kids, family, calls, work, bills, whatever. There's always like a task. There's always a meal. There's always a cleanup. There's always something. Do nothing for an hour and it will be really hard. You'll probably think about something that you haven't thought about ever or in a long time. Right, right. You have to present the contrast, which is what is it like to not be learning Yes. in order to understand what it's like to be learning, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very tough idea. And, and so like in that process, distraction itself is an inhibitor of action uh, in that in that basically not learning is a, is a type of action to do nothing is an action um, and, and so it's like how do you how do you basically make that transition there right it's it's like you have this fully distractive learning environment right we're, we're back on this dial right and I, I took now an individual who's on his phones all the time and I'm like all right let's spin the dial give you a random task and you got this amount of time to finish it right mm-hmm. now, how does that person manage their distractions then, right? It's like, 
you know, we have all these these barriers to actually learning this concept. How do we kind of displace them? And maybe maybe you don't. Maybe you're, you're screwed, man. You know, and you're like, hey, you got you got some work to do. But but I, I'm just wondering if there's a way to quickly get back on track to quickly distance yourself. From, and maybe this is the question that everyone else in the world is looking for, is, is some kind of quick fix way to stop being distracted. I don't think so, because that's why there's so many super, super popular books out there right now, like Atomic Habits and Essentialism and all of these ways that are, are, are focused on finding the essential things that you need for a lifestyle or a career or habits that will finally stick. Why do you try and do a habit and it only lasts a couple of days and then you fall back? It's it's really, really hard to learn something. It's also really hard to unlearn something. So unlearning habits or, or practices that you have, probably depending on what it is, more difficult than it is to learn the habit that you're trying to form or go in the reverse direction. So it really, it really depends, but there there is this kind of fine line between what environment you need to put yourself in and how to do that. Sometimes it's almost like a catch 22 where it's like, you can't really get started on forming this idea you have off to the side until these other things happen. But the idea you're forming off to the side relies on those other, like those other things. So it's like, it's, it's almost paradoxical for you to try and do this sometimes. Yeah. Distractions are such a weird uh, beast, I would say. I mean, because before you know it, you're distracted. Well, distractions have been commercialized. There you go. Right. We sell them and, and, and well, people's time, people's distraction is literally sold on and mass marketed through advertisements and so forth. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we should address, you know, what is a baseline distraction level that then prevents, like we, we can basically say like, okay, if you have this level of distraction, you know, you're stuck. And and then we can identify it as a problem. Like you are, you are hyper distracted and, I, and I'm steering away from the ADHD stuff, right? I don't want to get into that, right? Cause we all, we're all distracted. And so like, let's just jump out of that and, and get, get into, you know, where everyone else is and we're all distracted and stuff. But I, I want to just know more, more or less, and, and I know there's going to be a range of variation here, but you know, how much distraction can we handle while still being able to learn? Right. And I know it's different for every individual, but I think it's a question that's very necessary because there's always going to be distractions in life. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always going to be something you didn't think about and you still got to go do this thing. You still got to go learn about something and and, and whatever, you know, and I I just want to, I guess, assess some level of tolerance to the idea of distraction. And I I mean, you know, the answer is extremely challenging. I'm just trying to pose it out here. Um, I think it's actually, it's, it's, an, there isn't, there is no tolerance to it. There's, there's an unending amount of, of distraction that can be, can be held. And I think the only thing that will actually break or cap off is extreme failure in something else, like mm. f- extreme failure on an exam or loss of a job or being so behind on like bills or, or like separation of relationships, anything like that, that is a drastic step back or failure or, or shortcoming in, in some sort of way would be I, potentially a result of there are too many things that I'm distracted by. There's so much going on. I cannot give enough of my attention to the things that I'm trying to maintain. So I guess if any of those previous things did happen and you feel unhappy about it, that's frustrating to you, then there are ways that you can address them in different circumstances. And 
obviously the, the perfect mindset or the perfect lifestyle for anyone would be, I have zero things distracting me. I accomplish everything I want to do. And all of these different things I'm working on and focusing on are seamless and nothing gets in the way, which is obviously super idealistic and, and doesn't really happen. But everyone's trying to strive to be like that as much as possible. And it's really hard because it's an active fight against everything that's trying to get in the way and distract you. There's so many things and it comes down to one, how you personalize or, or interpret them for yourself and then how you address them going forward. Okay. Yeah. So let's get into this failure aspect then this, this evaluation period of the learning. Um, and I think this is going to kind of wrap us up here in, in the full, the full workup, but yeah, I mean, this is the hardest part of it is how do you test whether or not someone actually learned uh, and, and, you know, do we do it on a basis of, well, with this new skill set, can they make X amount of money with it? Right. This person learned this topic, but this person learned it better because this person made more money. Right. Is, is, is one just discrete quantifying uh, principle you could use. Um, another could be based on well-being. Um, another could be based on, you know, just some, some form of bureaucratic understanding, um, some standardized tests, perhaps, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm just looking for ways in which we can categorize a learning event because uh, we have all these learning events and you obviously of, often don't know if your learned event was successful until you failed. Right. Like you said, um, you don't you didn't know that, hey, actually, the whole time while I was learning, I was extremely distracted and that's why it was a failure. Um, but, you know, in the process of that, you don't really know. And so I'm, I'm almost looking for, you know, kind of cues throughout it that can kind of cue you in that, hey, you know, you're actually going down a potentially high risk failure route, you know, and maybe more of a uh, successful route would be learning about this instead. Um, because we're in this we're in this kind of crunch of a time where there's lots of things to learn about, lots of birthing new industries. And, you know, you might think that learning about you know, cryptocurrencies is going to be the next big thing. And so you spend all this time, but, you know, 10 years down the line, you learn it was a huge distraction. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, you know, what are the ways we can somewhat test during the, like in a momentary basis, test the learned results of whatever thing you're trying to learn? Uh, it's essentially like what, what quizzes can you give yourself in life that aren't imposed by someone else? So like in school, I would say the way that we check to see if you're learning the things that you should be or need to be learning throughout the, the time of a course or in a class is that there are frequent quizzes, which are smaller form specific questions to test and maintain the knowledge of something before you get to a large event, like an exam or a final or a thesis. And usually those ask you in some way to interpret a topic or an idea, or we've taught you this, this method. Now, from your understanding of this, solve something else. And I think that is where you start getting into true understanding of something and, and interpretability. But in life, there's no one giving you a quiz. There's no one telling you that this is, you know, you're on pace to be learning at this speed or you're, you're actually understanding it or you're not. And I think that's a level of responsibility that people kind of need to figure out how to bring into their own life and learning. And I think from maybe from our perspective, it's, it's little checks. And I think a lot of, maybe, maybe a lot of people will look at the money you can earn from it as this is like a universal equal, like equalizer say, Oh, I've done this thing and I've earned this much money from it. This is universally accepted. 
obviously I was good at it because I was able to earn something from it. People paid for the value or I earned value from this. Um, I think another way could be something smaller. It would be, say you are reading a new book or you're listening to a podcast and you say, wow, that was really interesting. There were so many good pieces of research and notes. I'm going to see if I can write them down from memory right now. I'm going to go write them, like not listen to it, but just see how much I can regurgitate and remember and write down on this paper right here. And then from there, if it's really important to you, take those notes you wrote down and then see if you can write a synopsis about it. That was what early language classes were. Read a book, write us write an analysis of it what does this mean if you can ask that question as many times as you can you will further the amount that you learn from something mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and on the testing side i just want to throw in some phrases some keywords to kind of describe this process but you know we mentioned the terms constructive and deconstructive and i'm wondering whether or not validation for a learned behavior is more effective in the constructive versus deconstructive in other words read a book Okay, deconstruct it, uh, and then write an essay. Construct it again, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the process of learning in, in that that kind of English format. Um, but I'm also wondering if you can kind of change that, you know, where uh, like maybe in your you're in a math class, right, and you're spend all this time learning to construct, and then the validation period, it's all about deconstruction. So maybe like a math derivation right? That'd be a deconstructive problem or something like that, right? Where you're trying to basically deconstruct the elements into something that's, you know, more refined or whatever. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if that's kind of the, the validation aspect of it, if it was the two contrasting poles. So in a learned behavior, if it's constructive learned behavior, then the testing side, you want a deconstructive process, right? So the, in there, you get the inherent variation of the two concepts. Um, and you've learned both methods of, you know, taking the clock apart and then putting the clock back together. Right. And I'm so, and, and that's the whole thing of the testing environment is just by swapping those two together, you're effectively flexing a different set of neurons, but the same type. Um, and that it's the same kind of components you're working with, the same stimuli, different way of assembling the stimuli. Uh, and I think that is a really interesting kind of way to conceptualize how to understand the testing protocols. Um, well, was the process constructive or deconstructive? Okay, then the testing protocol should be constructive or deconstructive. And I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm posing this out. I, I haven't like read anything about it. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm just curious to hear what, what you think about that. I think that's a fantastic idea. I think it's really, really cool. And I think also a good a good spot we can leave everyone off yeah. to to try and think through that and understand how you go through different different problems and different circumstances where you can either deconstruct something a little bit deeper to better understand it or take these pieces that you're working with and see if you can construct them into a new idea or way of learning. It's really interesting. Yeah. And, and with that, I think that concludes our episode 13. Um, so this has been a pleasure. We will see you next week for our revolutionary podcast episode. Thanks, everyone. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man.